Uh, I just want to kind of get into this talk tonight with uh, a video of some people who are kind of famous in one way or another, and they're talking about that experience of having sort of made it, but still struggling with those times themselves or their friends and family with those feelings of loneliness. Now, Pete, who led tonight, is normally our gatherings communications guy. He didn't know I was doing this, so I apologise for editing a bad quality video, but you'll get the vibe. All right, let's have a look. I know how it feels to be alone. I know how it feels to be around people and feel alone. Like, I'll be around a million people and I'll, like, still feel alone. Like, yes, just I know that, what you're that talking knowledge about. that it's all for nothing and you're alone. You know, it's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching it, you're in your car and you start going, oh, no, here it comes <laughs> that I am alone. Like, it starts to visit on you. You know, just the sadness. Yes. Life is tremendously sad just by, you know, being in it. All of a sudden I get back to LA. I'm by myself. My girl's not there. I'm si like sitting in the room and I'm like, what, like, what do I do? <laughs> like, I don't even know who I, like, what is Jake Paul right now? But it does say something about the human condition, you know? It says that here's an example of a man that had every dream and aspiration every resource to do it and achieve those things had every opportunity in the world to be happy but then ended up one of the most lonely sad human beings i've ever heard of so it's uh it says something about the human condition certainly the feelings of the loneliness that i think we all even you sometimes <laughs> have have experienced Hi, i like my own company for a while a bit. And then it's, at some point even I'll get annoyed with myself. There's something really lonely about that and uh, uh, a bit um, frightening for one who is not at peace with themselves. <laughs> Mike, would you say you felt very lonely in your boxing career? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why I was, um, after I finished running, I would go to some girl's house. Right. Like at four in the morning, I get up running, I come, I call this, I'm coming over there. You like find people that get around yeah. you. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. It started by me just sitting inside all day. And then it's like, then you get bored. Then you're like, well, I could just be high and I could have a whole adventure in this room. There's material items over me. I've seen people choose status quo over me. I've seen, I've seen people like, like when you give them ultimatums, they just choose everything besides you. <laughs> so I've just been um, placed in situations that are very heartbreaking as far as like people, period. From working with all the celebrities that I've worked with, I've found that sometimes the people that are the most famous are the most lonely. I lead a very quiet, yeah. normal kind of, really, I mean, my private life is a boring disaster, but, but work is good. Good, good yeah. and bad. I don't think it probably is a boring disaster. Oh, it's, I think it's, it's true. absolutely it's, fine. It's, it's, I, don't cry for me, Argentina. Oh. Uh, no. <laughs> Everybody is lonely at one time or another, and some people more than others. I sent myself Valentines, and those were the only Valentines I got. And people can't tolerate isolation. You know, it's, it's a very rare person who can, who can be on their own and stay together. You can carry that whole responsibility of being a winner, but the toughest part and the other side of it is a, is a much darker, um, lonelier aspect of sport is that 
you go back to your hotel room and everything is upon you. There's psychological needs that are just as valuable and important as physical needs. Like we know we have needs for nutrients, we know we have needs for water. We have needs psychological for, for all sorts of different things. Our communities are incredibly important. Love is incredibly important. Family is incredibly important. Get to be friends with your loneliness. See what's on the other side of it. Because often, really, when we describe loneliness, I think what we're saying is when I'm on my own, I feel bad about myself. I feel like I'm not loved enough. I feel like I'm not good enough. There's just a bunch of kind of famous people talking about what happens to them when they are kind of left alone, when they ponder and they realise something kind of rises up within them that says we are missing out on something. As we enter into this passage today, we are meeting a nation, a group of people who, when they sit and ponder, they realise they are missing out on something. They have been waiting and waiting and waiting for something to fulfil them, for something to satisfy them. They have a fair picture of what it would look like to make it, to be able to tick the box, to say that they are there. As we head towards this evening, uh, what is Jesus' very first I am statement? We meet him talking to his own tribe, the ethnic people of Israel. And they were hungry. What they were hungry for was to have their national pride back. That is what they were hoping for. All you need to know about at this moment is that Jesus is talking to his own people and they are under the harsh and brutal thumb of Roman rule. And what they would love is to be freed from that. They would love a king, a messiah, the, the one sent from God to come and throw off these kind of brutal overlords and give them back their nation under God. And by this stage, chapter 6, they've heard about Jesus. They know he's turned water into wine. They know he's stood up to the religious people. They know he's kind of healed the sick. So in verse 2 of our chapter, we, we didn't read it, but the crowds are coming because of all of these signs that Jesus did. They're thinking that Jesus could be the one to do it to finally fix that problem they've got, to stop that, that hunger and desire rising up. And so in verse 15 of chapter 6 that we, that we didn't look at in our reading, the crowd want to make him king in the same way they want him to be king, by force. Force him to be a king who forces out the Romans to show power, to give them freedom so that finally they can be at rest. But in verse 15, Jesus is not going to answer them in the way they want. What they think will make them successful and satisfied is not what Jesus will deliver. He goes off to a quiet place by himself, not letting the crowd make him become king. Uh, these people, like anyone else, had a fair picture of what they thought would make them at rest. What they thought would deal with their longings, what they thought it meant to make it. Just like in that video, but in, in a different way, you know, people have that idea of what they think should satisfy them and what they think should mean, yes, when I get there, I will sleep easier at night. 
I think we've all got those kind of things. They range from small and trivial to big and complicated. Uh, I'm going through the process of trying to sell a car and buy a new one at the moment. I feel like once I've ticked that box, I'll sleep a little bit easier. Um, there are bigger things that you hope for. As, as a parent, I would love to see my kids grow up and have friends and kind of do okay at school. And if that stuff happens, I'll be happy. I don't know what you have that you think when that happens, it'll bring me peace. Maybe it's a certain level of debt. Or if you're on the other end, it might be a certain level of investment. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you think you'll get peace when you get to work for yourself or you get a promotion. What, what is it? Because as we go towards our reading today, what we're going to see is people coming out to Jesus who are hungry. Hungry to see their nation restored, but after a long day, they are also physically hungry. And Jesus is not going to disappoint them. He is first up going to fulfill that physical hunger in an astounding way. And you know, in a small way, it reminds me of when I'm allowed to decide portions at catering. Um, I come from a long line of caterers, who, sorry, over-caterers, not caterers. Uh, I think you can see it on Ancestry.com. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, Christmas at my house, it would be, I'll try and remember it, two chickens, one leg of pork, one ham, one leg of lamb, one turkey, four salads, all dressed with cream of some kind. Then dessert was two caramel tarts, a Christmas pudding, Christmas cake, trifle, custard and ice cream. I have a family of five. Uh, I, ha I was allowed to decide catering portions for a church day away once. I had to decide on the coleslaw. I catered for a cabbage each. Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't, let, don't let me near it. Um, you know, Jesus here has this crowd coming to him. They're hungry in multiple kind of ways. And, and he does give them some food here, uh, food that they love. And the kind of second thing we're looking at here is the bread that they love. These 5,000 or so people come out and Jesus and his followers are trying to figure out what to do. Andrew, the disciple in verse 7, says it would take a year's wages to feed these people. We cannot do this. Oh, sorry, Philip says that. Uh, Andrew comes forward in verse 9. He's got a boy's kind of lunch kit. He says, here, I've got a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. There are thousands of people. <laughs> but Jesus is heading towards his first I am statement. We've looked at three over the summer holidays. We actually looked at them out of order because this is the first one he makes in John's Gospel. The I am statement where he'll talk about something that fills their hunger. But first he does a sign to point towards what he's about to talk about. A sign that he really can feed them. And he makes this tiny bit of food into enough to satisfy a great crowd so much that in verse 13 of chapter 6 there are 12 basketfuls of food left over. And at this point, the crowds are now satisfied from their physical hunger and perhaps getting more excited that Jesus could be the one to drive away their Roman worries. 
restore their national pride. But while Jesus is happy to feed them, he is giving them a sign not to help them get their dreams, but to give them more than they had in mind. Right where Ruth started reading for us, in verse 26, Jesus is speaking and he says, Very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures. Don't look for the stuff that had a used by date, he says. Look for something that is more. That feed on the side of the mountain, sure, they did need dinner. But Jesus says they had a hope that was too small. I think Jesus is revealing something about the kind of human condition here that often with our hungers and our desires and the things we want to satisfy us, the problem is the kind of food we want is just, the the portion is just too little. The celebrities, they get to what is the top of their game, the great heights, the, the thing where everyone adores them, and that surely that should be it. But still, the awful lows are there. I have all these hope for my kids as a young parent, but as I talk to older parents, they tell me, you know what, uh, the concerns just get deeper and longer and you lose more sleep and you never get to say, I'm completely done. Perhaps, you know, you're aiming for a promotion. That's what you think that will satisfy you. But guess what? Everyone gets restructured or retired or moved on. You'll get a relationship that will be a delight for the first little while. We always tell pre-married couples, you know, the first six months, the oxytocin is off the charts. It's lovely. And then it becomes work. You renovate the house and then you will have to paint it. And you'll have to paint it again. And you have to paint it again. And Jesus is not saying, hey, wanting those things, hungering for those things, it's not that they're all bad. It's just that they're too small. Don't put all your energy there. Don't put all your hope there because it won't ultimately do the job. It won't be what you need. It won't make you fully human. It will leave you with an eternal hunger. You know, I'm I'm trying to learn more and more about these foods that you eat but leave you hungry. I think that's, does anyone know about the keto diet? Is that what that's about? You eat foods that don't leave you? Anyway, um, I looked it up this week and apparently a croissant is the worst food for making you feel full and then immediately hungry. Because who doesn't get a croissant and think, I could eat three of these? Uh, They are delicious but because there's basically only butter, fat, and some white flour, a little while later, your body is going to say, you need a lot of carrots. It will not last. And as we head towards this big I am moment, Jesus is saying there is a satisfaction that will last Something better than what they wanted. More than the kind of cheap bread they'd just eaten on the mountainside. Jesus can end their hunger. And he's going on to explain what that whole feeding was about. The idea that he could bring something for their eternal appetite. 
Jesus in verse 27 says, Do not work for food that spoils, but food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. The Son of Man will give you. In the same way that he gave them the bread for nothing. He is offering to give them a type of life that fulfills and endures for nothing. They want to know more about it. And Jesus says, I will give it to you. The only job you have to do is trust me. The one who we read in John chapter 1 was sent by God the Father. It's spelled out in verse 29. Jesus answers, here's the work of God. Believe in the one he has sent. Some of the followers, I think, are starting to get that he's talking about way more than getting rid of the Romans. That He's talking about way more than their national pride. He's saying their real need is to be connected to the God that they have known about, to find life with him now and forever. Verse 32, Jesus says to them, Very truly I tell you, it's not Moses, your ancestor, who has given you bread from heaven. It's my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Somebody says, I've got bread from God that gives life to the world. What's your immediate question? Tell us about it. In verse 34, the the prayer that should be the prayer of every single Christian person, kind of tell us where we get this bread. And Jesus says his big I am in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Whatever you're chasing, he says to them, it it will just disappear. Whatever you think you're hungry for, that will not satisfy. You may beat Rome, but your bosses will still be hard. You may get a new Israelite ruler, but just like in the past, they will die. You may be a nation again, but you'll still have to go to work in the morning. In verse 48, he says his I am statements again and again. I am, Jesus says, the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the sweet bread manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, they will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world." Of course, at this point, it's way, it's way before he dies on the cross. Uh, he hasn't even really spelt out that's what will happen. So when he says, I will give my flesh for the life of the world, they really don't understand. It's a bit off-putting. In just a few verses, he literally says, you'll have to eat of my flesh. The word in the Greek is munch, chow. It's language that gave the first Christians a bit of a reputation for being some kind of blood cult. Uh, we've got writing from the first century and second century from non-Christians saying, what are, what, are, what are Christians doing, eating and drinking Jesus? But we know he's talking about his death on the cross. We know he's looking forward to that moment we share when we have the Lord's Supper, when we have communion, when we break the bread as though his body was broken for us, when we drink the the wine or the juice, thinking of his blood poured out for us. 
the death for our sins that brings life, the moment our judgment falls on him. What they need is their sins forgiven and eternal life with God. And he actually, you know, just about finishing the passage here, but he shows them something about eternal life here, which is kind of interesting. Uh, four times in this passage he says, I'll raise you up on the, on the last day. It's the only place in the New Testament where this language is used. Nowhere else in the New Testament. And actually, you know, kind of verse 39 and verse 40, he says, I will give you eternal life and I will raise you up at the last day. Eternal life and I will raise you up at the last day. You think about it for a moment. I reckon we think eternal life, isn't, doesn't that mean you do, like after you're dead, not be dead anymore? Isn't eternal life being raised up at the last day? Why is he saying eternal life and then I'll raise you up at the last day? It's because eternal life, the, the, the Greek word, which is this, the New Testament is kind of written in, the Greek word is literally life of the new age, a new era, a new eon, a new time. And that time starts the moment you do the word of God and believe in the Son. It starts partially, but it really starts. And absolutely does it go on beyond death. I will give you a new life of the new age and I will raise you up at the last day. And once you become part of this new life, you will begin to have a sense of satisfaction, of joy, of steadiness, of certainty that you have never known. Jesus is the bread of life. The best work they can do is to trust him. You know, one of the things you can do when you hear Jesus talking about this kind of bread of life and satisfying your hunger, one of the things you could do is actually just keep eating what I think you could call junk food. Because it's possible to sort of just occupy yourself and just keep moving fast enough that you, you never have those moments where you let that sort of question of what is life for and what am I doing with my life and am I lonely? You can keep yourself busy so you do not have to think about that. And so you can feed yourself on kind of constantly working or constantly thinking about money or constantly kind of chasing popularity. You can feed yourself on those things. You can feed yourself on education. I'll get an OP1, I'll get a master's, I'll get this ticket, then I'll get that ticket, then I'll get that ticket. You can feed yourself on fitness and staying in shape and kind of getting toned and getting good looking. You, you can do all of those things and never try to stop. Jesus is saying to you, your hunger is too small and it will leave you dead. Dead with God and dead for eternity. The great news of the gospel is that with Jesus we can trust him with the small daily hungers because even if we don't get them, with Jesus we get a food that lasts forever. A food that doesn't spoil and the life starts with trusting in the death of Jesus for forgiveness of sins. You know, when you're Christian, you know, don't you, that, that whatever your job is, whatever your weight is, however successful you are, that God is delighted in you because of Jesus. 
that no matter what happens tomorrow, he is with you by his spirit and he loves you. And in the midst of the storms of life and the calm seas of the life, God is with you and letting that boat steer through. And so the life of being filled and satisfied and knowing that God fixes your hunger, that is a life that even when it costs you personally, you can keep trusting Jesus because you know he's got you in the long run. It's a life I see in church all the time. When, when people who are in marriages with only one Christian partner and one person who's not yet a believer and yet they still raise church and they still raise Jesus in the face of kind of dismissive or, or being ignored or kind of rude comments. I see it in those people who knock off on the farm or they knock off at work to do youth ministry or another kind of ministry and they know that one more hour would absolutely finish the job. I see it in people when they say yes to lunch and dinner invitations, even when it means missing out on jobs at home or income, it means getting out of bed early or going to bed late. I see it in people giving money to someone in need when it means that their own lounge will have holes for a lot longer. I see it in people saying, yeah, I am a Christian, when the reality is it could cost them mates or in an even more difficult way, fly in the face of workplace policy. And listen, don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about whether you'll be promoted or if you'll get the holiday you want. In the long run, a lot of that is junk food compared to what Jesus is offering. Can I encourage you, church, keep working for him, not to impress him, but because his death on the cross secures your eternal future. And even though you might go hungry today, you will be feasting for eternity. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are the bread of life. You give us food that doesn't spoil. And perhaps some of us need to confess right now that sometimes our hunger is too small. We get too busy chasing after all of those little things that are just sort of day in and day out. And we forget that you have got us in your hand safely and securely. Please forgive us. And we want to thank you so much that you do give us eternal life and that you will raise us up on the last day and that the only work we have to do is believe in you, the one sent by the Father. Amen.